You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And it's incredible. The summer is just about here. My kids have about a week left in school. Boy, how time flies uh, when you're having fun, right? Or I guess uh, time flies when you're in a pandemic. All right. Well, time has not actually flown. It's been a crazy year and uh, I'm glad it's over and I'm glad the school year is over and then we come back and hopefully there's a non, you know, mask wearing world where we are free to go to large events, et cetera, by the time September rolls around. But uh, anyway, listen, today we're doing another Ask Buck episode, and I know this has been sort of dragging on, but we've just had lots of different uh, things going on in the middle, and I wanted to make sure that we got some material out sooner rather than later, and we talked to Ian about Bitcoin and all that because Bitcoin had a little bit of a, a dip, so potentially there was an opportunity to buy, and I wanted to get him in on that. But uh, let's go back and finish the questions for this quarter. Now, some of them are, are tricky to answer, but we'll try to get to everything and clean up the whole plate right after we come back after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Okay, let's, let's start. You know, I'm always biased towards recorded questions because then I don't have to read them and it, I don't know, it just... I like them better. So I'm going to start with some of the recorded ones that we have, and I'll start with Kelly. Hey, Buck. This is Kelly in Austin, Texas. I noticed a couple years ago you had a couple of webinars and podcasts about life settlements um, back in 2018. Haven't heard much about that lately. I'm just curious if that's still something that you think is a good strategy in the current conditions. Would love your input. Good question. So what? first of all, let's start out. What are life settlements? Life settlements basically are, so it's an interesting concept. So life insurance, cash value life insurance, like, you know, like uh, Wealth Formula Banking, like Velocity Plus, these things, they are products that are considered assets, right? They're basically, you know, a life insurance policy is an asset. And the Supreme Court made that decision almost 100 years ago uh, when there was uh, some issue basically with a, a patient who didn't have any money and he needed some surgery. And the surgeon said, well, uh, what else you got? And the guy said, well, I have a life insurance policy that you can have. Uh, well, I don't advise that, by the way. I mean, don't put your hand, your life in the hands of somebody who you benefit from your death. But anyway, as it turned out, this person did fine during the surgery, but eventually did die when the surgeon tried to collect. There was some issues with that. And then it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, yep, that was an asset and it was transferred to this surgeon and therefore he owns it. So that is a life settlement when you transfer the ownership of you know a life insurance policy to a third party. Uh, when you sell, sell it away, it becomes a life settlement. Life settlements, as you can imagine, are potentially a very valuable type of investment because as of right now, everybody dies, right? So everybody dies. So essentially what you're doing is you're buying basically at a discount 
a death benefit that you're going to eventually get. And the return, the rate of return you're going to get on that is a little difficult to predict because every year a person lives, your return goes down. So usually what you do is you rely heavily on, you know, these kinds of actuarial studies and that kind of thing. Uh, and you get a pretty good idea of, uh, of, of what your investment might be. It's obviously going to be more accurate if you have a whole bunch of policies that are in a fund because then they kind of average out, right? Some people live longer than they're expected to. Some people live less uh, long ex- and so on. Now, we used to yeah, we used to do some of this in the investor club. And uh, it's still something that I think is really valuable. But one of the reasons that we've stopped kind of talking about it and doing things, Kelly, is frankly because, you know, the cat's out of the bag, right? I mean, this has been going on for a while, but it really wasn't something where retail investors were participating in much. And now they are. And so before we were just, you know, we were buying them alongside Berkshire Hathaway and, and you know, other major companies. But now the prices, like everything else, have gone way up. And right now, at least from what what we're seeing, it's not really making sense to buy anymore. And so that's why we're not. So hopefully that answers your question. But in theory, it's a very interesting thing. There's not a lot of tax advantages to uh, this kind of investing. So that's another consideration to think about. Uh, you know, people have uh, typically done it through qualified accounts where they don't have to worry about the tax implications and all that. So, all right, let's see. What's our next question here? Hi, Buck. I love your podcast, and I've already participated in three investment opportunities thus far. I'm about to move forward with the wealth formula banking solution, but I'm deliberating on what the ideal minimum maximum annual contribution levels should be. Uh, My current plan is to place 100% of all newly created post-tax surplus into the policy and then always use the simple interest loan feature to fund all new investment opportunities moving forward. I don't see a downside to doing this, but this method is completely new to me. So can you tell me if this closely matches your own investment strategy using wealth formula banking? And if not, then would you share what the pitfalls uh, you think my strategy might present as well as what your general strategy is uh, with regard to utilizing the wealth formula banking solution in conjunction with uh, funding your investments? I'll save you some time by stating that I understand that you are not a tax professional or an attorney and that you are not giving me financial or legal advice. Thanks a lot, Buck. Well, that's funny because I was just about to start down that way. So yes, I am not. I'm not here to give you financial or legal advice, etc. Now, listen. Um, first of all, what is wealth formula banking? If you don't know what wealth formula banking is, make sure you go to wealthformulabanking.com and watch the webinars. Powerful, powerful concept. Essentially, what you're doing is you're using you know a type of uh, life insurance policy that has a cash value to it that's growing you know at 5 5.5% compounding and essentially what you do is put in capital there and then when you invest uh, in something you're borrowing out money from your life insurance policy but here's the kicker the money you're borrowing actually stays in the account and continues to grow at a compounding rate, what you're doing is you're borrowing from the insurance company, essentially at using your own cash value as collateral. And when you borrow, you're borrowing at a simple interest. So essentially what Lane is talking about is using a very powerful technique 
to you know invest your money in two places at the same time because it's growing at five five and a half percent compounding then you're borrowing it maybe you're buying it four four five percent but uh usually probably less these days but it's not compounding so there's an arbitrage between not only the number whether it's five or four percent and you have that one percent but also the arbitrage between compounding interest and simple interest and so uh, essentially, what that does is that it creates an additional layer of leverage to every investment that you do. That is the power and what we think is the true benefit of wealth formula banking. Double dipping, investing the same capital in two places at the same time and essentially juicing up your uh, cash flow investments. To the question of how much you put in there, Lane, it's a tricky thing. We talk about this all the time. But, you know, listen, the, the, the bottom line is that remember that you're, you're going to get the most benefit out of it if you maximally overfund it. So uh, Christian and Rod are good at reverse architecting this thing uh, so that you can come up with what you're planning on uh, dedicating every year. So maybe it's $100,000 per year to maximally overfund a policy. Well, they can create a policy that will show that if you consistently do $100,000, you're maximizing the overfunding. So I tell you that because that's really the question. It's not about, it's not about um, you know, how much to put in, but it's, it's really how much can you comfortably put in and know that you can put in the same amount for several years in a row. Right. So if you say you had a you made a commitment to overfund up to, you know, you know, you say it's one hundred thousand dollars per year, but some years you weren't able to do the full hundred thousand dollars. Well, you're not going to get hurt by it. But if you can only put in like seventy five grand into something that was structured for a hundred grand, then you're not going to maximally benefit from the strategy. So I don't think what you, there's anything inherently flawed in what you're doing. A lot of people do it, but I think you have to be really sure that over the course of however many years you're planning to fund, that you feel like that the number that you're working with is a number that is fairly easily easy to achieve. So in my case, you know, I've have you know a certain threshold that I know that I you know I'm going to have at least this much in my account at a given time uh, for investments. And that's that's the amount that I will put into that. So hopefully that answers your question. I know it's a little uh, complicated. And uh, of course, we don't want to give you financial advice and all that mumbo jumbo. But bottom line is make sure that the way that a number of people are doing it is they're saying, what is the highest number that I know I can fund per year and not feel like I'm, you know, like I don't have, I won't have enough money to do that. Understanding, by the way, that you're going to be able to, you know, you're going to be able to within, you know, 30 days or so borrow back the majority of the money that you put in. So it's not like you're creating money that you can't get access to, but you got to have a threshold of money that you can put in as a lump sum. Okay. So that's good. I think Lane has another question. Let's move to that one. Hello again, Buck. Uh, a while back, you mentioned that you were looking into some potential solutions that might solve the issue of not having enough or any uh, passive income that can then be offset with the passive losses uh, created by these passive investments. 
Uh, anyway, please let us know if the idea is dead now or if you are still in the process of validating and vetting this solution, because I am not a real estate professional that generates passive income, and neither is my wife. And uh, there may be others in your listenership that uh, are in the same boat. <laughs> anyway, thanks again, Buck. Well, yeah. So there was a show we did, actually I did with Tom Wheelwright not too long ago. And I have to, you'll have to look it up. But the last Tom Wheelwright show I did specifically talks about, you know, passive income and different ways to potentially convert, you know, business income and that kind of thing into passive income. So I'm going to defer to that again, just because I don't want to give you uh, any legal tax advice. But in a nutshell, the idea is behind structuring various types of businesses that you have now. If you're a W-2, you're just, you know, you, there's just not much you can do, right? But if you at least have some business ownership, say you have a practice and all that, there are ways to structure businesses so that maybe, you know, uh, ownership isn't, you know, you per se, it may be your spouse or it may be your children, in which case the that income becomes classified as, you know, passive income. So those are the types of strategies that, um, that you really, you know, need to look into and you need somebody like Tom or another tax professional uh, to do. So I, what I would suggest is going and looking at uh, our last uh, interview with Tom Wheelwright about passive income. I think that's even in the title, something about passive income. Now, you know, another option is for W-2 people, you got to start somewhere, right? So, you know, I, I, I think, you know, Ian Kurth was on this show last week, but he's a classic example. He's a W-2. He's got, you know, that, that kind of income, but he has over time created a number of vehicles uh, uh, that create this passive income for him. If you want to jumpstart, you know, there are certain things that are heavily weighted on cash flow and not as much downstream like real estate. Um, and a good example of that is are the, is the ATM offering. Uh, that uh, you, you know here is talking about wfvelocity.com. But if you can really jumpstart the amount of uh, passive income that starts coming through, you know, then you, you can kind of build on that wave if you're a W-2 person. But in terms of the creative stuff, it really has to do with people who are in one way or another business owners or practice owners right now. That's where there is opportunity. But I encourage you to go listen to that past uh, interview with uh, Tom. Okay, next question here, and I guess we're done with the recorded ones. Okay, the next question is from Mike. Fuck, as I move along in my journey, I have many deals that are offered to me. I understand the importance of doing the homework, understanding the numbers, and doing business with people you trust with a good track record. I have heard that from you and other trusted sources. Now, here's the question when you started out, who was the person on your team you used to bounce things off and weigh options and investments? All these decisions have CPA, legal, and investment portfolio impacts. Asking one of these individuals questions, I typically get incomplete answers. Who did you rely on most when you're getting started? I'm sure over time this will be rectified with a team that I will develop, but I don't have that now. Okay, well, listen, it's a good question. And the for me, here's how it worked, okay? It was really the school of hard knocks, okay? I I can't say that I made the best um, 
as a passive investor before I was involved with private equity myself, that I started making investments that always were the best investments. And so um, for me, it was a little bit of the school of the hard knocks and trying to educate myself along the way. You know, I think there's a couple parts to your question. One is, you know, and, and I think you you also address part of it, which is, you know, determining First of all, what is it that you're looking for, right? Are you looking for tax mitigation? What kinds of investments are those that provide tax mitigation or what kinds of, you know, things that you need to put into different kinds of uh, structures and all that? Those things I think you can learn from uh, the professionals like CPAs, and I think you can learn them from your attorneys, right? And the CPAs, if you have a good one, will say, hey, yeah, you know, if you find an investment like a real estate where they're doing a cost segregation analysis and bonus depreciation, we might be able to save you some money. And the same with legal. They'll say, well, yeah, and if you do a limited partnership, you know, and maybe you'll, you, you won't have the legal uh, implications if something goes wrong. And, and here's how you need to, you know, structure your own stuff. That's very, very, very different from um, actually finding the team uh, that you uh you trust with your money because once you find what you're looking for, whether that's you know tax mitigating investments in real estate, that sort of thing, the onus then shifts to you to find the the jockey, the jockey meaning the operator who is going to make you money and is going to perform. For that, you really do need to rely heavily on the things that we talk about: no like trust, but in addition to no like trust, track record. And, you know, sometimes you just get a sense of what people are doing and it just starts making sense. We just, if you've been with Western Wealth Capital long enough, you know, I mean, these guys are just, you know, they're making money hand over fist year over year and the track record is there. And so you can, you can, uh, for me and for many other investors, that is a trusted group. Now, here's where you have to be a little bit careful because you have to become the expert. You have to become the person who, you know, can identify a really good group, you know, based off of numbers and based off of track record, based off of your own personal instincts, because you do not want to rely on your CPA and your tax professionals to do that. They don't know any better than you. I guarantee you that. I guarantee you that. The most sophisticated CPAs that I know are not necessarily the best investors, right? They may know the rules and what they're after, but that doesn't mean that they know who to invest with. The nuances of that really are totally different than the professional support that you're going to get. So I don't know if that's going to help you much, Mike, but I would just tell you that, you know, get your foundational information. What are your goals? What's your, you know, what are you trying to accomplish and all that from your professionals, from your CPA, from your legal team and all that. But when it comes to actually picking the jockey, picking the teams as a potential partner, that's really going to be you. And it's going to be about vetting them over time and and taking some leaps of faith and, and using, um, you know, common sense about, you know, track records and that kind of thing. There's no way around it. And I pretty much guarantee in most cases that your CPA and attorneys aren't going to know more about where to invest or what's a good investment than you do. So, all right, let's see. Next question. Eric is asking, uh, 
is it better to continue to invest as an individual limited partner myself or to set up it? Use an LLC investment company that, that is the go-between for these investments. I'm looking at asset protection and also potentially moving investments into a, a trust at a later date. What would you recommend to make it easier in the future? So I can't recommend, as uh, you know, I can't uh, I can't tell you what to do exactly. Uh, I'll tell you what a lot of people do. I'll tell you what I do. So what's the idea behind setting up an LLC for your investments in the first place, right? I mean, if you are a limited partner, which you are in syndications typically, why would you bother? I mean, after all, you have no liability yourself, right? You are a limited partner. Well, the reason that a lot of people, including myself, use a holding company structure to deploy capital is not because of the liability that comes from the asset. It's the liability that comes from everyday living. So if I you know, hit somebody in my car and they sue me, the, in theory, the LLC provides me some layer of protection. My assets are not owned by me uh, individually where they become an easy target for a creditor. Uh, they are owned by an LLC, and if you have an LLC with uh, in, in domiciled somewhere with good charging orders, that provides you potentially good protection. So that's why most people are using the holding company. I think the other thing is, on a practical basis, sometimes it's hel- also helpful just to have all those K1s go into one LLC and 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 provide one K1 for your CPA. That's another practical reason to do it. Now, as to your question about transferability into trusts and stuff, what I've done with that is if, and again, this is not legal advice. I'm just telling you how one possible way of doing it uh, is that, you know, I've taken a manager uh, managed LLC and it doesn't matter who the members are initially, but you're the manager and then you can have that. So eventually if you want to move it into a trust, basically the trust becomes the sole member, but you're still the manager. So that also, you know, gives some easy flexibility into what you want to do in the future. But hopefully that makes sense. But Doug Lodmel is a good person to talk to if you want to discuss this further on a legal basis. All right. Next question. Andrew. Hi, Buck. Thanks for putting out such a great show. I've been intrigued by the ATM model. That's WFVelocity.com, by the way. Do you think that model could be extrapolated to EV charging stations? They seem like similar business, depreciable upfront hardware technology, then fee for each use. Advertising is also sold rent for additional income. With Biden's plans for EV, there is a big 20-year future demand. Thoughts? Follow-up question. What about crypto ATMs and international ATMs? Well, Andrew, all these are great ideas. Now, the challenge in, in, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, with questions from, I think, from Mike about, you know, choosing who to invest with or how to invest. You may find lots of different interesting models, right? You might, you know, we talked about ATMs here. We found a good model that works for ATMs. You're right. It sounds like the EV charging stations would be a, a good concept. I know nothing about them, but it, yeah, from what you're telling me here, that does make good sense to potentially invest in. And um, Bitcoin ATMs, we we might actually potentially be involved with that uh, in the fu- near future. But here's the problem though, right? Fundamentally, investors have the same problem that sometimes entrepreneurs have is it's a little bit of a shiny objects uh, problem, right? 
really good investing generally tends to be kind of boring and uh, rinse and repeat. And it's not that what you're talking about here are not potentially good investments. But remember, that is a passive investor. It is as much about the team and the operations and the track record as it is about the asset and everything else. You know, everything that you're talking about makes a lot of sense. But if you don't have people with experience in the space, you've got a solid business plan who can execute, forget about it, right? I mean, it, it doesn't make a difference. Same thing goes for real estate. You know, we're buying these assets and, and you know, in many cases, uh, uh, coming out with great outcomes for, for investors. But, you know, if, if another group bought that same asset, they might lose money, right? So, so I think you're right. There are lots of options here, but what I want to be very clear about, and I think it's important for our group and, and in general for investors to think about is, hey, careful with the shiny objects. Let's focus on, okay, that makes sense, but is there a team that we can know, like, and trust with a track record that can execute on this? That's really what it comes down to. All right. Last question, I think, and I think this is pretty much it. I think this is all we got for this round of uh, ask buck here. So this question is, uh, somebody wants to be anonymous and it says, I have a question about not sitting on cash. I'm a single woman, previously married, no kids, just turned 40. I own two condos, uh, each worth 600,000, which I bought cash as my business does not generate a lot of income and could not get a loan. I live in one and rent the other. After purchasing my business, I now only have $150,000 in savings and $200,000 in 401k, which was split after a divorce a few years ago. Could you please give me some specific suggestions as to how to grow this cash and position it so to prevent it from losing its value over time? Thank you very much. So, yeah, so honestly, I can't, first of all, I can't give you advice legally on how to do any of this, but. You know, I think that the the challenge you've got here is that, you know, there's there's a difference between assets that won't lose money over time and actually cash flow. And it sounds to me like you've got a problem uh, potentially with cash flow here too. What I will tell you is if it was me and I had real estate that's completely paid off, I would try hard to, you know, refi in any any way I could. That said, you you know, you have a situation here where you're not generating a lot of income, so you can't get a loan. So that makes it difficult. However, if it is cash flowing real estate, you may be able to find somebody to give you some debt on that to pull that money out and redeploy it somewhere else. It's a tough question you're asking because really it's it's a global problem you've got. You've you've basically got some assets, but you don't have a lot of income. Investing is very difficult without income. There's no two ways about it. And I think, you know, if your business is not generating a lot of cash, that's kind of where you got to focus. I think, you know, if you've got you've got money in real estate now, then, you know, good for you and and particularly if you're you're local to this area, Santa Barbara, Montecito, it's it's going to probably be worth a lot more in the future. However, the thing that you have to distinguish between is income and investments. And it sounds to me like it, it is not so much of an investment problem that you have as much as an income problem, right? So uh, unfortunately, that's sort of out of the, 
the scope of most of what we talk about. Although it does remind me a little bit about some lessons that we talk about when it comes to finding, you know, to, to get involved with businesses. You know, I think it, uh, entrepreneurs are are interesting people because a lot of times they'll go after things because they sound like they're, you know, they're fun businesses. This is what I can do and this is cool and it'll make me some money. But one of the things you got to be really careful about is if you're spending all your time on a business and it's not making mo- very much money, understand that there is almost certainly other business that you could spend the same amount of time and make a lot more money. And I, and I hate to say it like that because, of course, it seems so simplistic, but it's the truth. I've, I've, I've been involved myself on you know businesses where I can spend the same amount of time and literally make you know 10 times more and with not a whole lot more work. So part of what I think you may need to do in your situation, if, if I'm you, is to reevaluate what you're doing with your business and your time. You may not be in the right business if it's not generating income. And investing is, frankly, unfortunately, it's really the privilege of, of those who are, you know, who have a lot of income. In terms of, you know, what you have right now, again, you know, I'm biased and I can't give you advice, but certainly I think, you know, owning real estate is uh, solid. I don't think that there's a whole lot more I can give you. And in terms of the 401ks and all that, I, again, I can't, I just can't give you specific advice on what to invest in. But I, I would, again, try to make it, if I can help in any way, it would really just be to, you know, ask you to focus and think about what you're doing as a business and, you know, what could you potentially be doing that maybe has less overhead, maybe has less moving parts, less risk, and, and maybe more importantly, a higher upside. Because if you're in a business that relies on you, you're in a business that, you know, the more you work, the more money you make. And if you take a day off, you lose money. That becomes really hard. So anyway, I don't think I was very helpful at all uh, for that question. And I apologize, but there's certainly lots of shows out there other than mine that uh, might do a better job. But I I think you got to evaluate your uh, what your business is and whether you want to continue doing it. Okay, well, let's take a break and I'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. That is sort of my last round of Ask Buck uh, for this quarter. We had multiple shows and uh, hopefully you enjoyed them. Hopefully you learned something. Make sure that you start sending more questions and go to wealthformula.com and start recording them now, start writing them now so that uh, when it's time for the next run of Ask Buck, you get in there. I really prefer it when you guys uh, actually use the voice thing. That, that's, uh, you know, that that's kind of nice because it's nice to hear your voice and then I, you don't have to listen to me sputtering as I, I try to read your, your, uh, your questions out loud. But if you can't do it, certainly leave a written question too. That's cool too. But one more thing to remind you, if you like these kinds of Q&As and you learn a lot from them, you may seriously want to consider joining Wealth Formula Network, which is our, our community, our private community. And you heard Ian on the show last week. Ian's a big part of that network. Wealth Formula Network is, it started out basically being a, you know, it was an add-on to our course, your roadmap to real wealth. 
And, you know, it was like this Facebook group and this bi-weekly video Zoom conference that we have that for everybody who signed up for that course. But as it turns out, the way it's turned out, the course really just provides some foundations and allows you to really take it to the next level. And I think if you heard Ian talk about it last week, I think you get a pretty good sense of what people think because they, you know, generally when people come in, they don't leave and uh, it's a pretty tight community. So check it out. Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. There's a cheesy sales video there, which you don't need to watch. Somebody wrote that for me and it's a kind of silly, but it, it this is the kind of stuff we do in Wealth Formula Network all the time. And if you have friends and family who don't want to talk about this and you need a place where you can learn more about personal finance, check out Wealth Formula Network. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.